Welcome to the BGSM Podcast. I'm Daniel Friedman, and today I am very excited to be speaking with Christy Ashwanden. Christy is the former lead science writer at 538 and was previously a health columnist for the Washington Post, as well as an editor for Runner's World magazine. In her latest book, Good to Go, Christy explores the strange science of recovery, which we'll be talking about today. Christy, thank you for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Why did you feel the need to write a book about the science of recovery? And why now? Yeah, those are great questions. And the answer is sort of related. So I used to be a pretty serious athlete, an elite athlete. I was a, a Nordic ski racer for quite a while. I was also a runner in college. I've been a lifelong runner, actually, and was also a pretty serious cyclist for quite a few years. So as an athlete, you know, recovery was something that I thought about and, and, you know, we all sort of talked about it. But looking back on my athletic career, it's something that I realized I never quite mastered. And, you know, if I were to look back and say if there was something I could change, I think it would be to really give recovery more attention. I don't think I gave it quite enough attention when I was when I was training and I tended to be overtrained. Um, so that was, you know, sort of the genesis of my interest in the topic. But then in the meantime, in recent years, there's really been an explosion in what I like to think of as the recovery industrial complex. And there's just all of these uh, products and services that have sprung up to try and aid recovery. And what was really striking to me about these things is that when I was a serious athlete, recovery was really something that was, you know, rest, really it was the things we weren't doing But now recovery has really become a thing that people do. I mean, in my day, recovery was a noun. It was a state of being that we sort of hoped to attain through all of these things that we weren't doing. You know, it was resting and putting your feet up. But recovery has now become a verb. It's something that people do. And there are all of these rituals and products and things that people are doing. And it's much more active. So instead of just resting or taking a nap, now people are, are spending time doing these pretty elaborate recovery rituals. And so I was really curious to know whether any of them worked. In your book, you investigate common and the not so common recovery methods, review the literature and even put them to the test yourself. So let's start at the top of the recovery food chain and talk about something that has been the cornerstone of Dr. Gabe Merkin's RICE protocol since he coined the method in 1978. What is the role of ice in recovery? Yeah, so ice is something that has been part of recovery for a long time. When I was a bike racer, we used to fill up uh, bathtubs with with ice. And after a hard race, particularly on stage races, we would jump in the, the, the ice bath. And the idea here was that you're reducing inflammation, and this was going to reduce muscle soreness and, and aid in speed recovery. And so I've always sort of assumed that this was a really powerful recovery tool. But what I found while looking at the literature is that it's actually not backed up by science. And in fact, it looks as though icing may not only be not helpful, but could be detrimental. And what I found is that icing actually seems to impair recovery. And in particular, um, it impairs the sort of adaptations that muscles will make in response to exercise. And so I think the important thing to think about here is inflammation itself. Um, which so many of the products and services and things that are being marketed now for recovery, they, they really make these promises about reducing inflammation. And that sounds like a really good thing. But it turns out that inflammation is a really important and integral part of your body's recovery process and also the adaptation process. So the reason that you get 
fitter and stronger in response to training is that your body is, is making these adaptations and it's um, you know repairing damage that was done and doing so in a way that makes the muscle stronger, that you know, adds mitochondria, all these things that are helpful. And it turns out that doing things to slow or impede inflammation can actually impede that process. So where do painkillers like non-steroidal anti-inflammatories fit into this picture? Yeah, there's actually some really intriguing evidence that NSAIDs can actually be detrimental to the healing process. Um, this is something I've written about, and particularly in, in regard to running injuries. Um, it turns out that in the same way that icing sort of impairs recovery, NSAIDs can as well, and it's through sort of the same mechanism by reducing inflammation. And so there's some interesting studies that suggest that taking an NSAID like ibuprofen, for instance, can actually slow healing um, of orthopedic injuries. And so it's something to keep in mind. Now, I think that there is still absolutely a role for NSAIDs, and they're really good painkillers. And sometimes, you know, the need to dampen pain is is worth any bit of, you know, minor slowing of the repair process that you might encounter. But I think the really important takeaway here, particularly for athletes, is that these are not drugs that should just be popped, you know, prophylactically, and they're not something that should be taken mindlessly, that they're actually drugs that should be taken for a very specific purpose, and that should be to reduce pain and not to reduce inflammation. The, the inflammation reduction is not something that you actually want, and in fact, is not something that's going to be helpful. Before we move off the topic of ice, something that's become very popular in recent years is cryotherapy, or cryotherapy chambers specifically. Is there any evidence for these? Yeah, there's almost zero evidence that these are of any benefit whatsoever. Um, like a lot of these things, it's you can usually find one tiny little study somewhere with sort of shoddy study design and all of that. But there, there's really no convincing evidence that it's helpful. And again, it goes back to the same idea of inflammation and all of that. But one thing that was really interesting to me is this is really marketed as this super powerful sort of um, extra special powerful way to do icing. But it turns out that you don't even get your body or your muscles nearly as cold as you would get in an ice bath, in part because it's just done for a very short period of time. So although yeah, this liquid nitrogen is very cold, you're only exposed to it for a few minutes, and air is not nearly as good a conductor as water is. What did you find out about massage and foam rolling? Yeah, this was really interesting. And, you know, massage is something that I think every athlete loves. It's pretty hard to find an athlete who doesn't think that this is, you know, a really powerful recovery tool or, or that it feels good at the very least. And so I was really eager to see what the evidence was showing. And it was interesting because what I found is that there are a lot of claims that are made about massage, one of them being that it's flushing lactic acid. And what I learned looking through all these studies and looking at the evidence is that actually um, being told that something is flushing lactic acid is sort of a red flag that it's you know, giving you some sort of bogus claims because uh, lactic acid is not the thing that makes you sore. We used to think that it was, and so it used to be sort of this thing that people wanted to do. I remember when I was in high school, a high school runner, my coach used to say, you got to flush that lactic acid and we would shake our legs out. But it turns out that it's not what makes us sore, but it's also cleared very rapidly from our muscles on their own. And so usually by the time you're doing something like massage, that lactic acid is already gone. 
And so there are some other claims that are made about it. But what I found is that there's not really a lot of evidence for massage doing some sort of special physiological thing that's aiding recovery. And yet, this is what's interesting. I'm still convinced that it's something worthwhile for a lot of athletes to do. And here's why. It's a really, really good way to relax. It's a good way for athletes to develop um, sort of body awareness. It's a way to check in on their bodies and figure out how they're feeling and the different muscles and whatnot. And so even though there weren't these tangible physiological benefits that could be measured in a study, it's still something that, that may have some worthwhile benefits. Does this also hold true for self-massage like foam rolling? Yeah, so foam rolling has really become popular in recent years. And this is kind of sold with a slightly different um, approach than regular massage. The idea here is that you're really targeting the fascia, which is this tissue that surrounds the muscles, sort of like saran wrap or something like that. And so the theory here is that you may be getting adhesions um, in this fascia. And so the idea is you're sort of rolling out or, or, or um, smoothing out this tissue, um, there's not a lot of good evidence that that's actually what's happening. And yet there is some pretty intriguing and yet preliminary evidence that it, it may be useful. Um, but what's really interesting to me is I found numerous studies where they did things like they would do foam rolling on one leg, but they would see benefits on the other leg as well. And so there seems to be some sort of neurological process going on here. And with pain, you know, there is a neural component. And so it may be that um, foam rolling is somehow, you know, helping with this um, excitation in the muscle or the nerves. And so that it's working through some sort of neurological process. So with foam rolling, I think that it's something that's really interesting. It's intriguing. There's some preliminary evidence that's very suggestive that it's helpful, but there isn't like what I would consider um, convincing proof yet. And so I get this question a lot from people saying, foam rolling, should I do it or shouldn't I? And I think, you know, for a lot of people, it's unpleasant. It can be very painful. And to them, I say, you know, if you don't like to do it, I don't think that there's a convincing reason to start. On the other hand, if, if you're someone who's been doing foam rolling and you feel like it really helps you, then go ahead and keep doing it. And I realize that this is sort of like uh, a confusing message because people say, well, does it work or doesn't it? But my book has an entire chapter about placebos in it. And so I think that there is also the possibility that foam rolling is a very powerful placebo. And if that's the case, it's one that's you know pretty inexpensive, it's pretty easy to do. And so I think that there can be a role for placebos here. I don't think that we know at this point whether foam rolling is a placebo or not, but I think that it has the potential to, even if it works through some physiological process, to work through a powerful placebo process as well. Can you talk a bit more about the role of the placebo or placebome in recovery? Yeah, so... Uh, the research on placebos is so fascinating. Um, it turns out that our expectations about something can exert a really strong influence on how we actually experience something. So if I go out and do a hard workout and then I do something, whether it's taking a pill 
or doing a massage or trying some product, if I believe that that thing is going to make me less sore the next day, then that ne- when that next day rolls around, I have a strong expectation that I will be feeling better than I would otherwise. And so when it comes time to sort of rate and assess and experience that feeling of soreness, I'm very likely to actually experience it as being lesser than it would have been otherwise. And so the placebo effect seems to be particularly strong for things that have um, sort of a a component that can be um, a self-assessment or something like that. But these are real effects. And there there are interesting studies showing that um, placebos can even exert sort of drug-like influences um, in the brain. And so it's not just a matter of someone thinking or being tricked. It's that that expectation of something can actually alter the way that you experience it and the way that you feel it. Is there an element of this when it comes to stretching? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, stretching is something that's been really, really popular for so long. Um, it's also something that's highly ritualized, and it seems as though placebos uh, tend to exploit rituals too, or, or they seem to be more effective when they have rituals. Um, some of your listeners are probably familiar with the really interesting um, research here on knee arthroscopy and the fact that this can be a, a really powerful, you know, they've done these, these studies where, um, you know, people get the surgery or they don't and the outcomes are very similar. And so it looks as though surgery can actually be a very powerful placebo. And I think that part of the reason for this is that you have all of these rituals and you have these things that are done that create this big expectation for people that they're going to benefit. And that expectation can, can be really helpful. And so um, you know, I think this, this really translates into a lot of the things that are done for recovery as well. What about compression? What is it supposed to do? And what does the evidence actually suggest? Yeah, so with compression, um, there are a lot of different ideas that are that are said about it. Again, often it's said to flush lactic acid. Um, it's supposed to increase blood flow. It probably does increase blood flow a little bit over not having the compression thing on. And of course, this depends on the amount of compression and and exactly what's going on. You know, what I found with the compression products is that there's a very high variability, um, particularly with compression clothing. Some things compress a lot. Other things are much less compressive. Um, And then you have things like um, pneumatic compression boots, which are basically like giving the the muscles a a tight massage and things like this. But it turns out that compression, you know, there there aren't a lot of um, physiological benefits that we can measure that seem to be really helpful for recovery. There's a little bit of evidence, you know, you can find a few studies here and there that that seem to to make it look beneficial. But one of the issues here is that it's very, very difficult to do a placebo-controlled trial for most of these things. You know, I can't give one group, um, you know, put them in compression boots and then tell the other group they're getting compression boots when they really aren't. Like, you can tell if you're getting compressed. And so again, you know, you have these very large expectations about this. Um, so I would say that the one thing that compression does seem to do is maybe help with blood flow, but this isn't usually an issue with athletes. I mean, athletes already have really good blood flow. These compression garments were really um, originally designed and and created to help people who had medical conditions, for instance, diabetes, that were impairing their their um, 
blood flow, but this isn't something that afflicts most athletes. And in fact, you know, if you really want to increase your blood flow, the easiest way to do that is with a, a warm down or some light exercise. You don't need to use one of these products to do that. So Christy, what works then? What is the strongest evidence and greatest effect size when it comes to recovery? Yeah, so the, the really cool thing is I did find something that was extremely, extremely powerful for recovery, and it's something that's cheap, it's easy, it's accessible to everyone, and that powerful tool is sleep. And it's something that, you know, we all sort of know we should be doing, but what I found is that it's something that people just routinely neglect, and it's interesting. We're living in an age now where people do understand that sleep is important, and yeah, there are a lot of products now that are springing up to try and help people sleep better, um, in the book, I talk about sleep trackers and their use. Uh, but what I found is that, you know, the solution to getting better sleep and to optimizing sleep isn't, you know, better ways of measuring it or apps or tools or products, but really to make sleep a priority. And I think that's really where um, people go astray is that they don't give it the same priority that they give other things in their life, including training. If you're an athlete, sleep should be as important to you as your training program. And in fact, it's an important part of that training program. And so, you know, there are some pretty basic sleep hygiene things that people can do to get better sleep, um, keeping a regular sleep and wake time, making sure the room is dark, keeping it cool, things like that. But beyond that, um, most of it is just being regular about it. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of become a trend now among athletes to take naps, and that's another really great way to get some extra sleep in. It's also a great way to recover in between workouts for you know, elite-level athletes that are doing two-a-days, particularly in the, the early season. So that's one way. But what I found, you know, looking through all the research is that sleep is so much more powerful than any other tool out there that's being marketed or, or promoted for recovery. And so really, if athletes want to optimize their recovery, they would do very well to focus on sleep because nothing else comes even close. Does the literature suggest that there's a magic number when it comes to sleep? How many hours should athletes be getting? Yeah, so it turns out there isn't an exact number. Um, you know, everyone is a little bit different. It also varies a little bit with what you're doing. During periods of heavy training, you probably need more. On the other hand, it's also uh, true that sometimes after very intense exercise or when people are extremely fatigued, they may have some trouble falling asleep. And so there, um, the solution is to make sure that the person is lying in bed and at least being still and all of that. Um, but it's really a matter of getting regular sleep. And so the very best way to determine an individual's need for sleep is to basically spend a prolonged period of time, uh, you know, waking without an alarm. So just giving the body the time that it needs and, and sleeping until you know, you're not tired anymore. The problem is that in our, our current society, it's so common to be sleep deprived um, that, you know, it's, it's hard to sort of get to the point where your body has adjusted and you're not sort of catching up on sleep. So it's not sufficient to just do this for a night or two. You really have to make sure that you're caught up on sleep and your body's getting into a natural rhythm. So one suggestion that, that's been made is that you, this is something to do on vacation. You know, take note of how long you're sleeping. Give yourself, you know, prolonged period where you're sleeping in as long as you can. 
Christy, I know in your book you cover many more recovery methods than the ones we've just talked about today, but I was wondering if you can group them all together, what is the best way to measure recovery? What is the best indicator? Yeah, this was fascinating to me because I do have a whole chapter in the book about measures of recovery, and there's been a lot of research on this. You know, everyone's looking for this physiological magic metric that we could use to measure recovery. And you know, sports watches now, I tried out a lot of them, and I discuss this in the book, different measures, and there are things like um, heart rate variability that are being used and marketed for this. But it turns out that the strongest evidence to date actually shows that the very best indicator of recovery status is actually mood. And if you've ever been around an athlete who's been training hard, you probably know this. Um, as athletes become fatigued, as you're, you're training hard and overtraining, people's moods tend to go down, they get cranky, um, they may, may get a little bit testy. And so um, there's actually an instrument called the mood, it's, I think is it mods? The mood state recovery. I could send you a link if you send me an email. I, I can follow up with this. Um, but there's actually a, a psychological instrument. It's, it's basically just a short survey asking athletes how they feel. How tired are you? How much sleep are you getting? How's your mood? Are you cranky? Um, you know, how do your muscles feel? And just with a few uh, questions like this that are all... Um, you know, qualitative, not quantitative, this seems to be the most powerful way of figuring out, you know, how recovered someone is and, and also of avoiding overtraining. So if you have an, if you're a coach and you have an athlete who's, you know, really in a depressed mood and, um, you know, they're, they're starting to, to seem testy and, and not happy and grumpy and grouchy and all of that, that's a good sign that they're going over the edge. And so, you know, it's okay to be that way a little bit when you're, you're trying to be overreached, but it's easy to get into that um, range of overtraining. And that's a really dangerous state to be in because once someone is overtrained, it's very difficult to get back. In your 538 article published earlier this year, you highlighted some of the methodology problems in recovery research. What are these problems and what can the sport and exercise medicine community do to improve the quality of research? Yeah, it was really interesting. Um, I have done prior to working on this book and during during the process of writing this book, I was also doing a lot of reporting on other types of science and this whole issue of reproducibility and the replication crisis within science and within psychology in particular. And one of the things that people were talking about there was sample sizes and different kinds of methodology. And what I found is that I was writing about this stuff in psychology. And at the same time, I was seeing these same issues in sports science, but I wasn't seeing a lot of people talking about them, at least not initially. And, and this is changing now. There's now been the formation of a new organization called STORC. That's an acronym for... Uh, Society for Transparency, Openness, um, and something else in kinesiology. Um, but this, this group is really pushing for reform within the field um, to look at, at um, getting better methodology. So one of the, the most fundamental problems that I was seeing was that sample sizes are very small in these studies. And that's problematic because it's hard to generalize and it also makes it, um, you know, possible that you're getting uh, spurious results. 
And so that's one issue. Another issue is something called p-hacking, which is basically where researchers are collecting data and then sort of trying different ways of analyzing it until they get a statistically significant finding. And this is really problematic um, because what it means is that you know, it may look like, like something is really an important difference that may just be, you know, if I told you that I took 20 measures and only one of them was different, um, you might not be as impressed, um, particularly if you're fishing around after the fact. Um, there's something called um, harking, which is hypothesizing after the results are in. And this is something that's problematic. It's not the way that good science is supposed to be done. And so there's, there's a push now to do something called pre-registration. And that is where researchers are putting their plans out ahead of time um, saying, stating what it is they're going to measure, how they will do the analysis, and this prevents them from sort of fishing around for results that might look good. Um, another issue is that, you know, we have publication bias where there's really a bias towards publishing positive results. And so um, if I told you that there there's two studies showing a particular effect, that might seem impressive. But if you know that there were 10 studies that were done and only two um, produce positive results, all of a sudden they seem less impressive. And so that's a difficult problem to address. Um, one of the ways to do that is to um, encourage journals to accept uh, research studies and papers based on their methodology in advance before the, the results are in as a way of encouraging good science so that the acceptance of the paper is not based on the result, but based on the rigor of, of the research itself. Christy, I want to be mindful of your time, but before we let you go, can you leave our listeners with three clinical takeaways that they can use in their practice when it comes to recovery? Yeah. So the first one would definitely be sleep. Um, make sure that, that, you know, your people are sleeping enough. There's a common idea that, you know, people will say that, oh, I'm one of these people who can get by on six hours of sleep. But it turns out that almost no one can get by on six hours of sleep. There's a very small number of people who have a special genetic trait that allows them to be short sleepers. This is extremely rare. Most people don't have it. What happens is people who aren't getting enough sleep uh, lose the ability to, to notice their impairments. And people who say that they get by fine on six hours of sleep are usually just really well adapted to getting around those impairments, so it's not healthy. So number one is sleep. Number two is actually something that I think is also often neglected, and that is um, finding a way to manage stress. It's really fascinating to me to see there's studies now showing that stress can not only um, reduce the recovery process, you know, make people um, less recovered or less able to recover in a timely manner, but the, it also seems to be related to injury rates. So for instance, uh, college athletes during finals week are more prone to injury than other times of the year. And so I think the important insight here is that um, psychological stress, life stress is, is very stressful to the body. And so people really need to find a way to manage it and to deal with it because um, without that, you're not really getting good recovery. You're not resting. And then I think the third thing that I, I sort of encourage people to do is to 
you know, every person finds some sort of relaxation ritual and to find some way on a daily basis to relax and unwind. And I think that, you know, it's kind of telling of our society right now that we're at a point where people have to be taught to relax or told to make relaxation a priority. Um, but I, I think that that is where we're at. And at its most basic level, recovery really just is rest and relaxation. And so anything that people can do to encourage that and to give themselves time to do that. And yeah, this may be learning to sort of embrace, you know, the ability to do nothing, to put your feet up and to to lie down for a moment and take a breath and not feel the need to be constantly productive or constantly doing something. Christy, thank you very much for your time today. If our listeners would like to find out more about you or your work or your book, where should they go? Yeah, so my website is my name, christyashwanden.com. The book, uh, people can find out more about it and where to order it by going to www.goodtogobook.com. And on Twitter, I am CragCrest, C-R-A-G-C-R-E-S-T. Thank you for listening to this BJSM podcast with Christy Ashwanden. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with friends or leave us a review and connect to our social media channels. You can listen to a new clinically relevant BJSM podcast every Friday, and there is no better place to find them than on the BJSM app. As always, we hope you have a physically active day.